This is Ecotopia on KZFR. I'm Stephen Schutte. We've often wondered about how the snowpack in the Sierra is measured and how we know just how much water is up in the mountains. I'm Susan Chudy. Tonight we'll have a chance to find out from Sean DeGuzman, who is the chief of DWR's Snow Supply and Water Forecasting Station. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's nice to have you here. Well, before we get uh, knee-deep in the snow, we wanted to ask you a little bit, how did you become interested in snow levels, water measurement? What's your background? Yeah, so my background, I I earned my bachelor's degree in civil engineering from uh, Sacramento State University. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I actually went on to uh, complete my master's degree in civil engineering. Um, Wasn't actually required to, to do the work that I do. Uh, in fact, when I first, you know, uh, earned my bachelor's degree in civil engineering, I, I thought I was going to be like any other civil engineer, building buildings and bridges and things like that. Mm-hmm. Eventually, it wasn't towards the uh, end of my uh, college education where I started to uh, discover uh, water resources. Interesting. Gotcha. So are you from this area? Are you from... I, I am. I'm actually originally from uh, Sacramento area. I was born in Sacramento. Um, and so it's it's actually pretty funny. I was born at the hospital just right around the corner uh, from the office I work at. <laughs> Does it make you feel grounded and safe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's nice knowing uh, where I've come from. And, uh, you know, it's not too far. I'm familiar with the area. It's, it's home to me. So we've been uh, living in the under underneath the Sierra for Oh, probably almost 30 years now. We mm-hmm. lived in Reno for almost 20 years, and we've lived here for over 10 years. So um, everybody pays attention to the snowpack um, and uh, talks about it, but we never felt like we really understood it that well. Um, so how did you get interested in snow levels and water measure- measurement? You said you started looking toward water. What, what intrigued you about that? Yeah, so I first got a position or earned a position at the Department of Water Resources uh, doing some design work and engineering. Uh, but eventually, you know, I'd always heard about this lore of this group called the Snow Surveys Group uh, within DWR um, that my old supervisor used to work at. And, you know, he was a big avid hiker and, you know, he grew up in the Turlock area and he'd say, like, oh, yeah, I loved working in that group. You know, I, I do a lot of hiking, hanging out in the snow, a lot of field work. If you want to be in a group, that's the group you should try to get into. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, you know, once uh, one of those positions opened up, you know, I tried to get in as soon as I could, and I've been there ever since. Very good. Yeah, we're interested. We're both former educators and interested to see how many people out there are not doing what they were trained to do. And that includes us uh, as radio <laughs> DJs as well as a lot of what we taught at the university. We just kind of picked up on the job, not from our, our training. Well, we we got interested. We read in the Chico Enterprise record. It was based on a press release from DWR talking about snow levels and your late December measurement. Uh, and we wanted to ask you about that and how you, you derive the figures. So uh, it, w- it was not a very encouraging argument article. It t- talked about uh, snow levels in the Sierra are below average. Tell us what uh, you learned from the measurements at Phillips Station and and elsewhere. Yeah, so 
for our January snow survey, uh, we only measure about 20 or so of the snow courses out of over 260 snow courses uh, around the state. So it's really just a small subsample of uh, this whole state as a whole. Um, but at Phillips, we were you know, basically able to find one of those spots that had more snow uh, than most places you know, statewide. Um, at Phillips, we had nearly 93% of average snow on January 1st. Uh, but that wasn't what we're, that's not what we're seeing statewide. You know, uh, you know, further south as you move, you know, south into the San Joaquin watershed or even further south towards like, uh, the Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks, uh, snow is really sparse down there. Um, as of yesterday morning, uh, snow is only about 50% of average to date, um, which is pretty concerning, uh, especially with, uh, some of the weather outlooks looking to be dry uh, that far south over the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's really what we're looking at right now. Is our eyes are kind of in that central and southern Sierra is where our concern is. Right, right. So can you tell us what actually goes on at Phillips Station? And when you say Phillips Station, is it like a, a building and is there equipment there? And why is Phillips Station where it is? Yeah, so Phillips Station, I'm not too familiar with the historical background. I, I believe mm-hmm. it was actually uh, a stop along, along the way on Highway 50 um, before Highway 50 was even there for stagecoach and mm-hmm. you know, travelers uh, traveling, traveling across the Sierra. Uh, but the snow course there at Phillips Station is actually just in the middle of an open meadow. Uh, the way we have snow courses set up is there are two endpoints with two different snow uh, course signs. It's these orange signs. That way we know exactly on this line where we plan to measure. Um, and so the uh, snow course at Phillips Station was actually established uh, back in 1941. Wow. And it's, it's, yeah, it's at these actual predetermined locations based off of those endpoints where we measure, you know, from this point endpoint let's walk out 95 feet to point one um and we want to make sure we're on that straight line so so basically we're, we're able to measure the same seven points at phillips um every single month you know so that we have an apples to apples record going all the way back to 1941 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah so the way we actually measure snow is we have uh, what's called like a federal snow sampler or a snow tube and it's these uh, really highly uh, calibrated instruments that are made that are made of, out of aluminum tubes, um, and on them are special gradations that mark off, um, you know, in inches and to the nearest ha- half inch, uh, how deep the snow is. So when we go there, uh, you'll see us, um, you know, drive the tube all the way down through the snow, and then it's a hollow snow tube, so mm-hmm. it's actually coring out. A column of snow mm-hmm. um, and then we actually drive that tube all the way to the ground and the way we confirm that we've reached ground is you'll see us pull the tube up and then look at the bottom of it and see if there's a little bit of dirt in there and uh. if there is that means we've actually um, sampled a whole column of snow um, if not then we have to keep sampling that's what you know gets a little difficult and we see that in, in deeper uh, snowpack years but um, once we know we've reached ground, we have an entire column of snow within the snow tube. Uh, we then weigh that with uh, a, scale, a spring-loaded scale. 
Um, and those scales are also highly calibrated to where it tells us, you know, how many inches of water are contained within that column of snow. Um, it, it tells us basically a weight. And so since we know uh, the density of water, we know what the mass is, you know, it's a cal- calibrated tube, so we know what the volume of the uh, snow is inside, uh, we can then calculate how much water in inches um, is within that sample. Okay, and what's the relationship? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, we, we so we do that at those predetermined locations. So at Phillips, we do that at seven specific locations. Uh, we average out the numbers and come up with a whole number for just that location at Phillips. And then those are the numbers that are reported. And... and- Oh, Steve has a question. I just going to comment uh, facetiously. I love the precision of your science looking for dirt on the bottom of the snow tube. That sounds really precise. <laughs> well, it is precise because yeah, well, uh, you hit dirt. That works. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, um, I, I, I do wanna, uh, I want to, I don't want to say plug, but talk a little bit about the background of how these snow surveys were first created and developed. It actually goes way back. And so these methods were actually developed Late in the in, uh, in the late 1800s, and were officially developed in was it 1909 by um, a professor at the University of Nevada Reno named Dr. James Church, uh, mm-hmm. and so he was just you know fascinated with snow, mm-hmm. um, and he just wanted to be able to quantify how much water was in the snow because um, he lived in Reno. He wanted to know how much water eventually drained into Lake Tahoe, and um, and so he actually came up with the very first snow course at Mount Rose, which is still measured today. Uh, so we have a record at Mount Rose back to 1909. Wow. Mm, yeah. um, and you'll also hear us referred to as the snow tubes or the federal snow sampler um, as, as also the, the Mount Rose sampler because that's you know where it was invented. And now we use the same method you know, worldwide. And it just happened to be created in our backyard here in Reno. Wow. So uh, really cool uh, background and history behind it. Um, so where is the one at Mount Rose, the um, the uh, so station? Is yeah, it's not actually at the peak of Mount Rose. It's uh-huh. about mid-mountain. Oh, um, okay. I've never actually been to it myself. Uh-huh. Uh, but it, I believe it is slightly off of, uh, it's nearby um, the resort. It's not actually at the resort. Uh, but my counterpart oh, okay. with the Natural Resources the ski- Conservation with- Service. Uh-huh, okay, yeah. Uh, um, his name's Jeff Anderson, and he does the same thing there and measures that course for us. Um, and he, yeah, he does the whole thing in front of the media as well at, uh, oh. at Mount Rose. Yeah. yeah, right. I have a story to share here. When I was teaching at University of Nevada, we did an environmental course and had a uh, a friend took us up on top of Donner Summit to measure the snowpack. We did it with just a long. Uh, solid rod to to determine the depth the year we went up 10 years ago the snowpack was 14 feet at uh, donner summit about as much as it was when the the donner party went through so better days in terms of snowpack i think can you say and uh, right around the donner summit area is one of the deepest places that we have in the state yes yeah uh, so, uh, I have a couple questions. Um, I have a lot of questions, but one of them is how, um, what is the relationship between what you measure in snow, both in density and weight, and what you get in water? Yeah, so 
uh, relationship for density in snow is we're looking at the depth of the snow or, you know, how deep is that snowpack? That's right. the number that you typically hear from, you know, ski resorts say, oh, you right. know, we just got eight feet of powder, right? That's, yeah, right. that's mm-hmm. the depth that they're talking about. That's not necessarily the number that uh, we as water managers are, are more curious about. Uh, we're more curious about the amount of water in that depth. Right. Um, Say they, you know, they're saying eight feet, but within that eight feet of snow that they just got dumped on them, maybe there's only, maybe there's eight inches of water, which is a deluge of water, to be honest. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but we take that number, the number of inches of water mm-hmm. within the snowpack, divide that by the, uh, you know, number of inches of depth of snow. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that percentage is the density of the snowpack. So, uh, you typically hear, you know, like, oh, this is powdery conditions, it's light, fluffy snow. That's when you would hear of snow that is lower in density, say right. 10 to 20% density. Right. Um, because if it's lighter, it has less water in it. Right. It hasn't so, been packed down. It isn't exactly. tight. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the other question I had is why is there so much variation? between what you found with that 93% of average and all of the averages state why what makes one is it just the snow that comes down or are there other features in the geography or in the movement of wind or weather that accounts for that variation yeah so for this year that variation is most likely due to how the storms have come in and how cool and how warm the storms have come in. For the most part, a lot of the storms that have come in this year have been on the cooler side and then mostly in the northern part of the state. Um, Where Phillips is located is right near the summit at Echo Summit. So typically the higher in elevation you go, the more snow you get. Um, But that, I would say, is very close to being an anomaly at Phillips. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. January. Yeah, yeah, right. Do you want to... I was just going to mention that we've seen Phillips Station mentioned a number of times over the years, so I was getting the idea that that's sort of a poster child for DWR <laughs> in terms of, uh, yeah, just, just showing people what's up, that you're you're up there taking care of it, and a way to get the word out on the depth. But I know you've got other measurements, the article we read talked about uh, electronic readings. Where are those gizmos located, and uh, how, how does that work into your equations? Yeah, so our electronic uh, snow sensors are scattered up and down the state as far north as the Trinities, and we even have one uh, basically right on the California-Oregon border, and we have them scattered as far south uh, down near the, the Tatch piece. Um, and so there's about oh, 130 yeah. or so of those um, in the state. And the way those work, um, it, it's, it's similar to a scale feature where um, they're filled with an antifreeze inside. And when the snow falls on them, it basically is using like a weight of the snow and it displaces the fluid within that uh, electronic snow sensor. Mm-hmm. And it's able to record the weight of how much snow is on there. And based on that, it's able to... Uh, send data via a satellite to our databases back at our office so that we have data, you know, every 15 minutes of roughly what the snow is looking like. 
Wow, you have a lot of, there's a lot of data that comes in, isn't there? A lot that has to be figured out, <laughs> the relationships among which. Um, how, how, what, how does the percentage, how much of California's water comes from snowpack? And whose water comes from snowpack? Yeah, roughly about 30% of the state's total water comes from our snowpack. Uh, a lot of the other water comes from, of course, rainfall. Um, as well as groundwater. Um, for the most part, a lot of the snowpack in California uh, drains into the Central Valley, uh, where there's a lot of agricultural needs, of course, and you know feeds all of uh, the crops in the Central Valley. Uh, but on the other side of the Sierra Nevadas and even the uh, Southern Cascades, you know those uh, that snow drains into those watersheds. So um, even some of the water uh, that you know falls near Mammoth or even Mount Whitney that drains onto the eastern side of the Sierras. Uh, some of that water drains um, down towards like the Mono Lake Basin and that water even makes its way and pumped all the way down to Los Angeles. So yeah. um, it's water is uh, being shipped in and around everywhere. Um, for example, the Feather River watershed, which is uh, kind of uh, the Department of Water Resources, our watershed, uh, with Lake Oroville, of course, right. uh, has a state water project. So um, there's a lot of interest in that watershed, um, especially since we send a lot of that water to Southern California mm-hmm. uh, via the California Aqueduct. So uh, a lot of interest in snow statewide. Yeah, there there is. We live on Lake Oroville um, near uh, um, Lime Saddle, and uh, we watch that. Uh, and I know this is all artificial. We watch our lake turn into a very small lake, turn into a big river, turn into a little river, you know, as the seasons and the needs in Southern California dictate. Um, so what is um, what is the consequence of not having that water if we don't get like a good snowpack? And what is a good snowpack? And when do we have to worry uh, let's see. So, I'd say a good snowpack is anything near average, but it really it really depends. You know, for us, uh, a good snowpack, I wouldn't say is a really deep snowpack with a lot of water because that also causes concerns for flooding. Yes. Um, at the same time, you don't want too little of a snowpack because then you have less supply. That's why we, we always kind of hope for something near average. It's a lot easier to plan to on the water management side. Um in terms of getting worried, um, it's hard. It, that's really hard to say. It's a very uh, regionally based um, answer. Mm-hmm. Um, some areas are doing a lot better off than, than others, right? Like the uh, Southern Sierras are off to one of the worst starts on record in terms mm-hmm. of rain and snow um, with not a lot of relief in sight. Um, however, up north, it's doing a little bit better. Um, but those are things that we're tracking on a daily basis. Um, but yeah, after... The wet year of 2019, just two years ago, we're lucky enough to have still some of that carryover reservoir storage mm. uh, that's still holding us uh, back from getting us getting too worried. Okay. So what are the consequences if we don't, I mean, if it diminishes or if we have a very bad year, what? who suffers? Uh, who suffers? I'd say uh, anyone, everyone. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the hardest part is... Um, with, with not much snowpack, that's going to affect a lot of different industries. Um, 
you know, of course, agriculture, power generation, recreation, uh, you know, water supply deliveries, allocations, um, everyone. Um, so that's that's the thing is we don't like having back to back to back, you know, really dry years. That's when we start to uh, to start to get a little bit worried. Right now, we're only on the second year of a dry year if this year holds out to be dry. So, mm-hmm. um, now if you remember back to the most recent droughts, that was roughly 2012 through roughly 2016, mm-hmm. um, but really 2015 being that uh, hard to say peak drought, but uh, 2016 came in at about average, slightly below average, so that was encouraging. And then, of course, everyone knows what happened in 2017 and literally blew us out of the water. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you work with the uh, people who determine how much water is going to head south for agriculture, for example? Uh, I've never fully understood the statistics, but they say uh, southern agriculture can expect maybe 20% of its allotment, and we know that the whole system is over allotted but uh do, my question really was do you work with those folks as well to help them figure out what what they can allot during the, the spring and summer months yeah so that's a different uh office within dwr but mm-hmm. we do work with them but not in the sense where they would have any kind of influence to what our data is telling us or what our forecasts are telling us that's why we are in completely separate offices interesting uh we mean you know we merely yeah exactly there we don't want there to be any kind of conflict of interest so mm-hmm. we provide the data we based on this data and the scientific information we provide you know this is what our forecast of water supply is they take that data in run their own models um that i'm not really familiar with myself and then mm-hmm. that's how they determine the water allocations yeah Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. the separation of, of powers there. Obviously, uh, the distribution of that water is highly controversial, of course. And everybody says exactly. we're, not, we're not getting our share. <laughs> everybody. Uh, every year. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> You're listening to Ecotopia on KZFR. We're talk- talking with Sean DeCuzman of the Department of Water Resources, the Snow Measurement Office. Uh, I don't have the quite the right title there i'm sorry uh we want to take a short break then we want to broaden the discussion a little bit to talk maybe about climate change and some of the other variables that enter into your calculation this is ecotopia on kzfr Ecotopia on KZFR. Tonight we're talking with Sean DeGuzman of the Snow Supply and Water Forecasting section of the Department of Water Resources. And we're talking about the Sierra Snowpack, which is light at the moment. In this segment, we thought we'd also ask about some of the other variables uh, that that play into it. Uh, for example, you, you're in tune with Weather forecast, you said it's going to be dry in the San Joaquin area in coming weeks. What are your forecasts up at this end? And could you tell us how does that translate into your estimates of the present snowpack and what you think it's going to wind up being at the end of the the snow season? Yeah, so my team at DWR actually uh, puts together a water year 
uh, forecast. It's called our water supply index forecast. Um, and that's used um, for a variety of different reasons. But uh, starting on December 1st uh, and every single month up until May 1st, we uh, make a forecast of roughly how much water uh, like the Sacramento and the San Joaquin region will receive uh, all the way out through the end of the water year. Um, with the water year starting on October 1st and ending on September 30th. So you can imagine how difficult of a you know, uh-huh. calculation and, and you know yeah. how difficult that can be, you know, on December 1st, trying to project out water that's, you know, 10 months away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, with the weather not even happening yet. So uh, a lot of the data that's included is, you know, historical climatological data uh, that we have on record. Uh the data that we use is, you know, precipitation, of course, uh, a lot of the snow data that we incorporate in from our snow courses that are annually measured, um, as well as uh, the data that I mentioned about our snow from our snow sensors. Mm-hmm. Um, one nice thing about our snow sensors is that data comes in more frequently. It's, you know, real-time data that comes in, you know, every 15 minutes. So mm-hmm. we have data, you know, what has a better temporal resolution. Um, but then again, you know, snow courses and snow sensors, that's really just one point location. Um, and so that's kind of uh, opened up to this whole new emerging technology idea where we're starting to get a better picture of snow at a spatial level. Um, but in terms of precipitation and snowpack, you know, other factors we're looking at, of course, are runoff, you know, uh, flow within mm-hmm. the rivers. Uh, how much water has already flowed, you know, into, say, Lake Oroville or, you know, Pine Flats or wherever it may be. Um, And those are the kind of things that we're looking at because there are a lot of historical relationships that our models are based on Mm -hmm. um, that we're able to help project out that far out in advance. Is climate modeling becoming more sophisticated? Are people getting, I mean, are there technologies or techniques for predicting weather that are more sophisticated than, say, 10 years ago? Oh, by far. There's been a lot of advances in climate modeling um, in a lot of those sciences, and we've partnered with quite a few different entities to help us with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the groups that we've been working a lot with is uh, out of the uh, Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego, uh, called CW3E, which stands for the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes. Um, and they've been doing some great research in atmospheric rivers. Right? Ah, those, yeah. Those those, uh, a lot of those uh, that research coming in from those atmospheric rivers where there's just this large plume of water vapor coming from the tropics. Um, and that's how we get a lot of those really wet storms. Right. Um, and so... They have a lot of these, you know, AR research, like AR for atmospheric research, I'm sorry, atmospheric river for short. So mm-hmm. um, a lot of these AR research going on, a lot of this research going on is, um, you know, where and when are these ARs going to hit, you know, the Pacific coast? Um, and some of the outlets that they have, it's some of this really great work where it's, you know, they're able to see out, you know, maybe a week or so in advance. Um, a lot of our weather models are pretty good about a week or so out, but mm-hmm. once we start to get out that day, out into that second week, that's where the weather models start to collapse a little bit, and there isn't nearly as much confidence um, in them. Um, but there are multiple models that we refer to 
Um, and when, you know, with the multiple models start to uh, diverge, I'm sorry, converge on, you know, a specific outcome, that's when we start to gain confidence that, hey, this is something that we should expect to happen. Got it. Yeah. So the the two-week uh, window, I'm thinking when we lived in Reno, uh, Reno was flooded when we had a unpredicted spring rain. We probably, Maybe we had three or four days warning, but uh, how far out could that sort of thing be anticipated? Can you guess that there might be spring rains this year uh, in April, March, or is that just beyond the range of the data at this point? That's a little bit harder to predict, and so, but we do have outlooks uh, from our partners at the Climate Prediction Center. Um, I haven't looked at the latest outlooks, but I do want to say the northern third of the state, probably north of that I-80 corridor, mm-hmm. has somewhere between equal chances of above or below normal precipitation um, for the next three over the next three months, I and see. then a lot drier, uh, moving as you go south. Uh, a lot of that is due to La Nina. Uh, La Nina is one of those uh, climate signals that we have where it's looking at the uh, sea surface temperatures uh, right near the equator uh, in a certain region of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, And so with the La Nina year, that's when the sea surface temperatures are uh, cooler than normal. Whereas on the contrary, we have, you know, El Nino years where it's warmer. Um, But what's more with with La Nina years, uh, with that cooler weather, what's uh, typical during a La Nina year is, uh, a ridge of high pressure tends to build up off the west coast of uh, the United States. And with that high pressure ridge, it tends to push that jet stream and all the storms, you know, into the Pacific Northwest, you know, Oregon, Nevada, or sorry, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia. And so that's where a lot of the storms this year have been heading. Um, and a lot of the reason, I'm sorry, uh, that's a lot of the reason why the storms here in California, have only been clipping the northern part of the state. It's uh, just hitting the tail end of those storms. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we're hoping for is for that high pressure ridge to eventually just collapse, and you know that fire hose, that atmospheric river, will start to shift further south into the central and southern Sierras. That's kind of what we hope for, but there's really no way of uh, knowing that far out. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, too, about soil moisture content. If we have a dry fall, for example, uh, or a fiery summer, the first snowfall is going to be soaked up by the dirt, I think, uh, which would affect how the snow accumulation. Are there ways that you can include that sort of data in your predictions? Yeah, so, so some models do incorporate uh, soil moisture, and that's actually one of the things that we monitor when we do go out a snow survey. Uh, what people don't realize is that we're, what we're writing on those little pieces of paper when we're out there is little notes. You know, we're not only writing down the depth and the weight of the snow, we're also writing down conditions. Was it sunny? What was the soil like underneath the snow? Was it dry? Was it damp? Was it wet? Mm-hmm. You know, things like that. So we're making note of that on our, uh, on our snow survey notes. Um, and some of that data is starting to be incorporated into some models. Um, as well, uh, not the models that we have. Uh, they're not ne- nearly as sophisticated yet. Um, but then also at those uh, snow sensors that we have scattered throughout the state, uh, there's more than just snow sensors at those locations. We also have, you know, temperature uh, temperature sensors, soil mm-hmm. moisture sensors, uh, you know, relative humidity, 
wind velocity, you know, wind direction, we're collecting all types of uh, climate data. Um, but yeah, some of that soil moisture data is starting to be incorporated into other water supply models that are out on, mm-hmm. uh, that are out there. Well, now I understand why you want to get dirt on the end of the snow stick too. That's another way of <laughs> <laughs> just being a wise guy. Sorry. Um, we were talking on the way in uh, about the geographical terrain and just the what seems to us the monumental difficulty of measuring the variations of the Sierra. I was wondering in part whether you use satellite photos in any of your work, but in general, how does your formula crunch the numbers of the, the hills and valleys, the, the ups and downs that are so prevalent in the Sierra? Yeah, you can, like I mentioned earlier, earlier, you can only imagine how complex of a model it could be mm-hmm. with looking at geographical terrain and soil moisture and rain and snow, all these different variables that are affecting, you know, the hydrologic cycle or the water cycle, right? How much water will eventually drain down to, say, a re- into a reservoir. Mm-hmm. Um, the models that we use at DWR are, uh, are, are, are nearly as sophisticated as others. It's a it is a uh, statistical regression model that takes a lot of different uh, hydrometeorological data, incorporates that, and uses a prediction that way. Um, we have other partners, though, that, like you had mentioned, some of that satellite data that is out there, um, and even other data such as uh, coming out of uh, the Airborne Snow Observatory uh, that was initially started at uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, so back in 2013, uh, his apartment actually uh, started uh, a partnership with with uh, NASA JPL to kind of work on this uh, airborne snow observatory. And with this uh, ASO project, um, what they were doing is measuring snow from an airplane. Uh, oh and on that airplane, uh, they had attached you know a lidar scanning device as well as uh, an imaging spectrometer. Uh, and basically, you can imagine a plane flying over the mountains, you know, going row by row by row, yeah. similar to how, you know, you mow a lawn, wow. right? And they're collecting just terabytes and terabytes of data. Um, all that data computed, though, we were, they're able to tell us, you know, roughly how much snow is on the ground um, in every three by, in every five by five meter grid or so. So you can imagine, mm. you know, me or anyone else, you know, uh, driving a snow tube into the ground, imagine doing that millions of times throughout uh, the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are some of the emerging technologies that we're starting to uh, trying to incorporate. Um, that project has since ended at NASA and uh, has turned into its own private uh, company, and we've actually partnered with them. Uh, to start collecting some more of that snow data that we hope to incorporate into our forecast so that we have, you know, a better picture on, you know, what snow is out there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How do you, uh, that sounds enormously complicated and like your learning curve must be going up and up and up and up and up. Um, how do you factor in climate change? How do how do people consider climate change as they're working with all of this data? Yeah, that's one of the really tough parts uh, of the job is, uh, especially with our forecasting methods that we have now, uh, with our forecasting methods, it's based off of historical data. 
Uh, and how do you predict right. future with historical data that isn't really the normal anymore? Um, and so those are some of the issues we start to run into. Um, so what we're starting to turn to is more uh, physically-based uh, models, um, things where we can turn more knobs, more sophisticated, more complicated, where we can you know, maybe crank up the temperature a little bit here in a location on a certain day or you know, maybe have the sun angle be a little bit higher or anything oh, like that. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. What we're starting to see, though, more is a lot more rain where we, where we would typically see snow. Yeah, And that's one of the issues is that we're starting to see that immediate runoff from those from that rainfall. Whereas before, it, when it would fall as snow, it would fall as you know, liquid, I'm sorry, it would fall as a solid snowpack that you know, wouldn't show up until uh-huh. two, three months from now. And that's a really big issue with the reservoir operators and, and just water management yes. in general. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I'm having trouble imagining the uh, computers that you must use to crunch those numbers. Uh, is it a giant, huge room, big computer? You have banks of computers. And I, I also want to know, this is a dumb question, <laughs> does the computer finally spit out one answer that says, we're okay this year or we're doomed? <laughs> there are In our building, there are lots of servers. There's a lot yeah. of data that's uh-huh. coming in and going out. Um, one really neat thing about uh, the office that I'm located in is we're actually uh, co-located uh, with the National Weather Service. It's actually the only uh, facility in the country that has a state agency and a federal agency working hand-in-hand um, on something like this, water management, you know, hydrology, mm-hmm. weather. Um, and it's a regular partnership between us, and we share a lot of that data. Um, and that's one of the really great things with uh, what we have is a, a website and a database called the California Data Exchange Center. And it's basically the industry standard for all this data being housed uh, that anyone can access at any time of day. That's hmm. amazing. What Would you repeat that website again? Yes, the California Data Exchange Center. It's uh, located at, you could access it at CDEC. Uh, we call it CDEC for short. Uh-huh. It's at cdec.water.ca.gov. Wow. And that must be enormously useful to people who are working in water-related issues. So uh, do you worry? Um, does the work that, does there, is there any anxiety connected with the kind of work do you do about miscalculations or unexpected weather um is that ever um anxiety producing oh sure yeah with, <laughs> with the type of work we're in you start to you, you, you can start to think about you know the consequences of of getting a number wrong um and that's why we take so much pride in our work and the numbers that we're producing and the forecasts that we're supplying to our our audience you know, we do our best to, you know, uh, make sure everything is as accurate and precise as possible. But, you know, we're human. We make mistakes. Um, but it's definitely something that we think about. And we always try to put our best foot forward to make sure that they get that right information as soon as they can. Um, especially with all the consequences that can come from a bad forecast right. um, or anything like that. Wow. 
This is enormously more complicated than I expected when we began this conversation. Thank you for enlightening us. How can listeners learn more about uh, the work that you're doing? You mentioned the website where they can learn more about the weather data. And we'll put that up on our website as well. But uh, how can they learn more about what you all are doing? Yeah, really, it's all of our data and all of our reports. If you're curious about you know, precipitation or snowpack, uh, reservoir storage, how our reservoirs are currently looking, and any of the forecasts that we're putting out, you can find all that information at uh, the California Data Exchange Center website okay. at cdec.water.ca.gov. Okay. That's great. great. Super. Thank you very much. Um, this has been an enlightening conversation to me. I hope that uh, our listeners appreciated it as much as I did. We've been talking with uh, Sean Guzman of the Department of Water Resources. He's responsible for measuring the Sierra snowpack and figuring out all this other stuff that we had no idea about. So thank you so much, Sean. Thank you, Sean. We really appreciate it. It was a really interesting conversation. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to Ecotopia on KZFR. That was a fascinating interview to us to learn more about the snowpack. And we've wanted for a while to read to you a little bit about the Great Flood of 1862. This is directly related to what we discussed tonight. It was the largest flood in the recorded history of Oregon, Nevada, and California. It took place from December 1861 to January 1862. And was, uh, we want to thank Jimmy Brobeck put us on to this on one of his interviews with us when he was talking about Aqua Alliance. It was preceded by weeks of continuous rain and snow in the very high elevations. It began in Oregon in November, continued into January. This was followed by a record amount of rain from January 9th to 12th, contributed to a flood that extended from the Columbia River southward in western Oregon through California to San Diego, extended as far inland as Idaho, the Washington Territory, Nevada, Utah, the Utah Territory, and Arizona, as well as the western New Mexico Territory. The event dumped an equivalent of 10 feet of rainfall in California in the form of rain and snow over a period of 43 days. Immense snowfalls in the mountains of the far western United States caused more flooding in Idaho, Arizona, New Mexico, Sonora, Mexico, the following spring and summer as the snow melted. The event was capped by a a warm, intense storm that melted the high snow load. The resulting snowmelt flooded valleys, inundated or swept away towns, mills, dams, flumes, houses, fences, and domestic animals, and ruined fields. It's been described as the worst disaster ever to strike California. So California was hit by a combination of incessant rain, snow, and then unseasonably high temperatures. In Northern California, it snowed heavily during the later part of November and the first few days of December when the temperature rose unusually high and it began to rain. There were four distinct rainy periods. Native Americans, interestingly, knew that the Sacramento Valley could become an inland sea when the rains came. Their stories described water filling the valley from the coast range to the Sierra. The entire Sacramento and San Joaquin Valleys were inundated. An area about 300 miles, that's 480 kilometers long, averaging 20 miles wide, 
32 kilometers and covering 5,000 to 6,000 square miles was underwater. The water flooding the Central Valley reached depths up to 30 feet, completely submerging telephone poles that had just been installed between San Francisco and New York. Transportation, mail, and communications across the state were disrupted for a month. Water covered portions of the valley from December of 1861 through the spring and into the summer of 1862. The North Fork of the American River at Auburn Auburn, rose 35 feet. And in many other mountain streams, the rise was almost as great. On the 9th, the flood reached the lowland of the Sacramento Valley. Sacramento, sited at the junction of the Sacramento and American Rivers, is was originally built at 16 feet above low watermark. The river usually rose 17 to 18 feet almost every year, so you'd get your feet wet. But on this year, in 1861 and 62, the Sacramento River reached a flood level of 22 feet, 7 inches above the low watermark, after rising 10 feet during the past 24 hours. The Sacramento floodplain quickly became inhabited by a growing population during the gold rush and served as the central hub for commerce and trade and the home of political leadership, the California legislature. The landscape was recognized as uh, flood-prone, located at the confluence of the American and the Sacramento rivers. And John Muir noted the extent of seasonal flooding in Sacramento. He said, the greatest floods occur in winter when one could suppose all the wild waters would be muffled and chained in frost and snow. Rare interval warm rain and warm winds invade the mountains and push back the snow line from 2,000 to 8,000 feet or even higher uh, and then come the big floods. There are a lot of photos, uh, photos and drawings and sketches on uh, Wikipedia and uh, the History Channel about the flood of 1862, showing people rowing around the streets of Sacramento. They also point out that there, the only way across the valley in those days was by steamboat. So steamboats would carry mail, passengers, food, and supplies across the Sacramento and San Joaquin valleys. So the series of storms carrying high winds and heavy precipitation left streets and sidewalks underwater. There are canals in place of city streets in Sacramento, boats docked at storefronts. On Inauguration Day, January 10th, 1862, the state's eighth governor, Leland Stanford, traveled by rowboat to his inauguration building held at the state legislature office. Much of Sacramento remained underwater for three months after the storms passed. And as a result of the flooding, the California state legislature was temporarily moved to San Francisco during rebuilding and renovating the sunken city of Sacramento. They do need point out that these floods occur about every 500 to 1,000 years. So these are catastrophic years. Nevertheless, with climate change, we might want to be braced for another storm of the century. The city of Sacramento suffered the worst damage due to its levee, which lay in a wide and flat area at the junction of the American and Sacramento rivers. When the floodwaters entered from the higher ground on the east, the levee acted as a dam to keep the water in the city rather than let it flow out. So soon the water level was 10 feet higher 
inside than the level of the Sacramento River on the outside. Um, John Carr wrote of his riverboat trip up the Sacramento River when it was at one of the highest stages of flood. He says, I was a passenger on the old steamer Gem from Sacramento to Red Bluff. The only way the pilot could tell where the channel of the river was was by the cottonwood trees on each side of the river. The boat had to stop several times and take men out of the tops of trees and off the roofs of houses. In our trip up the river, we met property of every description floating down. Dead horses and cattle, sheep, hogs, houses, haystacks, household furniture, and everything imaginable was on its way for the ocean. Arriving at Red Bluff, there was water everywhere as far as the eye could reach. And what few bridges there had been in the country were all swept away. You've been listening to Ecotopia on KZFR. We always welcome comments on our program. Send us an email, ecotopiakzfr at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, ecotopiakzfr.com. And we now podcast via Anchor, Spotify, Apple, and all the usual sources. Thanks for joining us. That's it for Ecotopia.